Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins and welcome to Life, Death and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium and here we explore life, death, consciousness and what it all means. Today I have an interview I have been waiting for for the book to come out because you weren't doing interviews before the book. The book Sacred Medicine, it's Lisa Rankin's new book. It is amazing. You all know I read every book. I read this cover to cover. So let me tell you a little bit about Lissa. Lissa is an MD, a mind body medicine physician, author of seven books, and the founder of Whole Health Medicine Institute, and a mystic who researches radical remission, trauma-informed medicine, and spiritual healing. Her TEDx talks have been viewed over 5 million times, and she starred in two national public television specials, Heal Yourself, Mind Over Medicine, and The Fear Cure. Lissa's interest in the link between loneliness and disease has led her to spearhead her latest project, Heal at Last, a non-for-profit organization which aims to bring effective trauma healing and spiritual healing methods to anyone ready for the deep dive of healing. Welcome, Lissa, who I'd like to be my new best friend to the show today. <laughs> so lovely to meet you, Amy, and so lovely to be here. And thank you for everybody that's listening. Hi, everybody. I just wanted to thank those of you who are supporting the show via Patreon. I literally could not do this without you. It means so much to me to have any sort of support for the show, but really the financial support is super helpful to me right now. I'm an independent podcaster. This is all being funded by me. So anything you can do to help that, if you love listening to the show, if you love the content I'm creating, if you love the guests that I'm having on, please support the show. I have amazing, amazing guests continuing to come on the show. I'm so excited. I've grown the month, the most month over month in the past three months. And that is because of all of you sharing the podcast, telling people about it. So thank you so much. Uh, we had our second quarterly Ask Amy Anything in March. So that was for Patreon subscribers and supporters only. And the topics were really heavy this time, but wonderful and necessary to talk about. And we talked about everything that's going on, the on in the world, both from a spiritual and psychological perspective. And together, we tried to make meaning of all of this. So our next Ask Amy Anything will be in June. So if you are not a member of Patreon yet, if you are not a supporter of the show, you can go to patreon.com backslash Dr. Amy Robbins and support me and the show. And again, it helps so, so much. Um, and if you could also take just a minute to share the show with your friends and family and anybody you think would love it, you can do that anywhere you get your podcast. Just click on share this link or copy this link. Uh, and send it to, I don't know, three, four, five, ten 10 people who you think would love the show. Uh, anything, anything helps me grow. So you can also follow me on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. You can watch me on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. And you can sign up for my newsletter on my website. Again, all of these things are great ways to help. You can also rate and review the podcast, which is um, easy an expensive way to help me. Actually, it's completely free. So anything you can do to support the show, I am so, so grateful. The growth I know is going to help me in some way. I'm not exactly sure how yet, but I know it will. And uh, thank you all for listening. And here's this week's episode. 
So this book, it truly is incredible and it's different. My listeners know I read just about every book for which I inter- for the people I interview. This book is incredible for people wanting to explore sacred practices, conventional medicine, where this sort of chasm is, where the bridge is. So can you start with what defines sacred medicine? Well, that kind of changed as I wrote the book. Uh, When I was starting this book, it actually originally began as part two of Mind Over Medicine, so which is a book that came out in 2013, and I had been researching. I was trying to find, after quitting my job as a conventional medical OBGYN, I was trying to find, like, wait, there's all this other stuff in the world of healing and medicine and mind, body, spirit, wellness, whatever, that nobody taught me in medical school. I was completely naive in 2007 when I quit the hospital. I was very indoctrinated, as I was telling you before, into the Northwestern way. Like it wasn't just evidence-based medicine. It was the Northwestern version of evidence-based medicine, which was very academic, very Mm -hmm. dogmatic science, very materialist science, and very rigorous. And I was a full convert into that, like sort of cultic way of that cultic sort of belief system. And my father was a doctor, so Um, I had been raised in that world with him, and my mother was also a fundamentalist Christian. So I had sort of like the materialist science dogma on one side and the fundamentalist dogma on the other side, and there was no crossover. Like anything in the middle was like quackery and charlatanism to my father Mm -hmm. and the work of the devil for my mother. And so I was really naive. I really didn't know, you know, some people like grow up in new age cults or whatever, like they're, you know, indoctrinated into another kind of dogma. But I was completely naive, which made me quite vulnerable, as many people who come out of high control groups are to being indoctrinated into like the next, what's the next big thing. And Mm. so the first thing I did when I left Um, the hospital was I ended up at Esalen taking a writing workshop and I met all these alternative medicine practitioners and energy healers and mediums and psychics. And it was like, what? Like I thought that stuff was nonsense. Like from my belief system, that was not real. And yet these were like really solid, normal people and they seemed to have good jobs and they seemed to be helping people. And I really didn't understand what was going on at all. And then I started having some strange direct experiences um, that were very um, disorienting. And I thought I was going crazy. And, you know, I feel you because I, <laughs> I was there too. I really was like, what's happening to me? So anyway, I started by studying all of the science of what outside of conventional medicine and outside of the traditional wellness, you know, eat well, sleep well, do yoga, um, outside of those two sort of camps, what else is out there? And so I was, Mind Over Medicine was the first part. It was like, here's all the science proving, for example, that loneliness causes disease or that creativity improves your health or that, you know, if you're working in a job that you hate, this is bad for your health, you know, these sorts of things. And so I created like the whole health care and the six steps to healing yourself. And all of that was in Mind Over Medicine. And it was all legitimate science, like New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of the American Medical Association, like legit science. But then I kept hearing all these anecdotes that were outside of that world. Like even in medical literature, you have the Institute of Noetic Sciences put together 3,000 case studies of spontaneous remission. And a spontaneous remission is not evidence in the Northwestern way. 
Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's just a story. And none of these stories actually asked the patients like, what did you do? They're just reported. They just report the, the facts. But they, you know, I was just surprised by the lack of curiosity in the doctors that would write up these case studies of medical mysteries, you know, well, incurable. You, you talk a little bit, sorry, about, I just want to stop you for a second, about the evidence-based way of thinking in terms of that is like the, that is the gold standard. That and, is, you know, yeah. anecdotal stories of thousands and thousands of people doesn't matter. Right. That's not evidence. In the, in the world of science, that's a true statement that that is not evidence. But I was like, but that's also not nothing. Mm -hmm. So in the original Mind Over Medicine, I was going to have all the evidence base in part one and then all the stories in part two. Like, because there are things we can objectify in the world of healing. And then there are all these subjective aspects of healing. And I was interested in studying the subjective aspects of healing. So when you asked me to define sacred medicine, I would say that back when I realized that was too unwieldy a topic for one book and I decided to write a second book, originally I was intending to, sacred medicine for me was going to be sort of energy healing and faith healing and spiritual healing and indigenous healing, shamanism, um, that kind of thing. But I, um, like I said, now I would say sacred medicine is anything in the subjective realm of healing. In like love as medicine or trauma therapy as medicine, because there's, you know, there was a big pivot point about five years into my 10 year journey where I started, um, I was actually at an energy psychology conference giving a keynote and a doctor from Duke who I had known for a long time said, you have to go see Asha Clinton, the founder of advanced integrative therapy. She's using this energy psychology to treat cancer. And I was like, what? I didn't even know what energy psychology was. They invited mm-hmm. me to this conference. Was but I'm this like, ASAP? Yeah, it was. Yeah, um, I was a, I've been a member on and off when I take courses from them. Yeah, so I didn't even know what it was when, when Bob Schwartz invited me to come keynote there. And, I, you know, I'd never heard of EFT or any of these other... Um, actually, I had heard of EFT. I just didn't understand it was an energy psychology. So I, I just kind of was there, kind of the kid in the candy shop, trying to see if there was anything useful for my book. And I went into that workshop and Asha was telling these, again, anecdotes, you know, anecdotes of people who, for whatever reason, had declined conventional medical treatment or failed conventional medical treatment. And, and again, I'm never an advocate. Like, go, if you get cancer, go to your oncologist. Like, I always have to have that disclaimer. Yeah, you're, you're, that's what's amazing about this book. You're not dogmatic and it has no, no, to no. be this or has to be that. No, I'm like, I'm not in the like scientific materialist camp and I'm not in the new age camp. Like I am trying to be the camp of no camps. Like there is no reason we need to choose either conventional medicine or sacred medicine. So these were not people, you know, Asha wasn't sort of selling her therapy as a a cancer, an oncology treatment alternative. It was more like for whatever reason, these people we're not getting better or had decided that they'd rather just go to hospice and sort of, you know, fade out. And she started doing this multi-causal illness protocol that I wrote about in the book that uh, was anecdotally people's cancers were going away without medical treatment by treating their traumas. And I was like, what? And I had this light bulb moment 
where I realized that here for five years now, I had been going around the world working with, you know, shamans in Peru and Qigong masters from China and Balinese healers and faith healers and energy healers and all of these spiritual healers all over the world and going to pilgrimage sites like Lourdes. And, and I was, the minute, the minute that landed, I thought, oh my gosh, that's what a lot of these healers are doing. They're actually treating trauma, but they're often treating it badly because they're not trained clinical psychotherapists. They're not trained in cutting edge treatments like somatic experiencing or internal family systems or some of these energy psychology tools. And so I was just like, wow, maybe I'm missing a piece. I need to like go down the, the, you know, the rabbit hole of cutting edge trauma therapies. And then I start talking to therapists who are treating mental illness or treating trauma symptoms. And I'm asking them, hey, do any of your patients have like chronic mystery illnesses or whatever? Oh yeah, most of them. And what happens when they get treatment? Yeah, their symptoms start getting better. So that was like a huge clue. It was like, what? Well, and isn't that what a scientist is supposed to be? (laughs) Right? Like you have a hypothesis and as you're working, that hypothesis evolves and you get to an answer that is different or can be different from what you originally thought. Yeah, so that was not, I am very much of a scientist. Like there's so many times that I have admitted publicly, well, I made this assertion and I was wrong. And here I rewrote Mind Over Medicine in 2020 to update what I now believe, you know. So I think any good scientist is willing to say, you know, I had a hypothesis, I, I was part right, or I was disproven. And now I have a new hypothesis and I'm going this direction. So I really just followed the breadcrumbs. And it was very funny because that, that particular like five-year thing of going down the trauma healing rabbit hole landed in an experience this year that just made me laugh out loud because I was working with, I've been working with Chris Rutgers at the Trauma Foundation. He's fabulous and he's doing fundraising and health equity issues around trying to, like I am, trying to get cutting edge trauma treatments to marginalized and oppressed populations who can't afford it. We do not believe this should be a luxury good only for privileged people who can afford it. So Chris and I have been working together with my nonprofit and his to try to address that issue. And one of, the ther- one of his therapists that he's been working with as a trauma survivor, he has an ACE score of eight, so he's very, and he's spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on his own treatment. And, and so for ACE, for people who don't know, ACE is Adverse Childhood Events Scale, and it's a scale that therapists often give to assess if you had traumatic events before the age of 18, which is also something I wanted to talk to you more about, because it doesn't mean that you can't have had a traumatic event that deeply impacted you, just because right, it, it happened after 18. It doesn't touch developmental trauma, which is my issue, what I've been in therapy for. My A score is zero, but I have a lot of developmental trauma, sort of mm-hmm. that trauma of inadequate parenting. So we'll, we could, we'll talk about that in a minute. But anyway, this, he said, let me introduce you to my developmental trauma therapy expert who's specializing in somatic therapies. And he said, you know, would you like to do a session just so you can see what it's like? And I can't tell you how many sessions I've done in the past 10 years. Like everybody wants to show me. Let me show you what I do. Right. And then, I, you know, I, I just put myself in that sort of open and vulnerable. I'm the patient. I'm not in my critical thinking. I'm just like the subject. And then I put my critical thinking cap on and I'm like, what was that? So I did the, I did the treatment and it was so gentle. She put me on a 
table and she's just like putting her hand really lightly over my right adrenal gland and she's like, this part works really hard. We're just going to let it rest for five minutes. And she puts a little five-minute chime. And we're just there in silence while she's just got her hand over my right adrenal. And then she moves to the other side and does the same thing to my left adrenal. And then she puts her hands on my feet. And she puts her hands on my brain stem. She's like, yeah, this part that goes into fight or flight works really hard. We're just going to let that rest. So it's like an hour of, you know, five-minute hand positions in silence. This is trauma therapy, right? And at the end of it, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. How is that not energy healing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> How is that not hands-on healing? Like, right. Right? So I was like, that doesn't look like trauma therapy at all to me. <laughs> like, there was no talking at all other than, now we're going to let this part rest. And this is the most effective, this is the most effective treatment that Chris has experienced, and, and he's tried everything. Hmm. So I'm going, whoa, I had another like full circle moment. And I said, how is that different? And she said, I'm not manipulating his energy. I'm not putting energy in him. I'm not taking energy out of him. I'm just holding a safe, sacred space for his body to work out the intimacy of my hand in these potentially triggering spots. And his body, because I watched his session, his body is shaking. Mine wasn't. I was very calm. It just felt like a nice meditation. Wow. So that was like, wow. <laughs> I was kind of in shock. Well, and so, I think it just speaks to when we try to separate these pieces out, they, can they even be separated? They're so well, that's intertwined. Why, that's why when you said define sacred medicine, um, you know, I, I, I would say it is, in, it is anything that allows the, the relationship between the divine self, the self with a capital S, if you want to use sort of internal family systems language, the doctor, healer, perfect mother, perfect father, guru inside of each of us that I call your inner pilot light, anything that develops a relationship between that aspect of your being and the wounded inner children and coping mechanisms and survival strategies that we all have that impact our nervous system and cause us to be in these chronic fight, flight, or freeze states that disable our ability to, you know, um, that impact our endocrine system and our immune system and our microbiome have ends, end organ issues mm. that put us at risk of chronic and life-threatening diseases. And again, I'm, I always like to be have the disclaimer, like there are absolutely diseases that are not related to psycho-spiritual trauma. You, you might live next to a toxic waste dump, or you might have been born with two cystic fibrosis recessive genes. Um, but the majority of illnesses that conventional medicine fails to treat fall into that category of trauma-induced physical vulnerability because of the breakdown, the multi-organ system breakdown related to chronic nervous system dysfunction. Yeah. Well, and I think what's important here, and I've had some listeners reach out sometimes frustrated, and you're not, you're saying something very different, but often they hear that as sort of this blaming the victim or it's my oh, no, no, no. fault. No, it's that's, not that's the, right. Yeah. It's, and I make that very clear in the book. It is not all in your head. It is absolutely in every cell of your body, all the way to every organ and every 
every bodily system. And it's nobody's fault, including the people who traumatized us in childhood and gave us these ACE scores or these developmental traumas, because they also were usually traumatized. So it's not... If we get into the whole blaming or faulting, I, I have or a whole feeling list. like you should just positive think your way out no, of no, no. something like that. That's not at all what this no, is. No, I'm not a yeah. fan at all of affirmations. I don't believe in any of that stuff. That's just gaslighting yourself to just be like, I am whole, healed and healthy when you're suffering and you're getting chemo and you've got a tumor. Like that's not a true statement. You're not whole, healed and healthy right, right now. You're suffering and trying to heal and become whole and healthy. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not saying that in any way. I, I have a whole lot of what I call the paradoxes of healing. Like, you know, your disease is not your fault and your healing journey is your responsibility. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, it's so nuanced. And people make the mistake all the time of going black and white. So, you know, like I just wrote a post on Facebook yesterday about germ theory and terrain theory, right? It's not one or the other. Yes, COVID is real. It's a virus. We, it was a novel virus. None of us were immune to it. And how we tend to the terrain of our nervous systems and impact our bodies with our nutrition and whether or not we're ingesting toxic substances and doing our trauma treatment and all of that, I believe does impact the outcome of how we tolerate COVID mm-hmm. if we get it. Right. Right. So all these polarizations and, and there's a lot of them around the like law of attraction, which I don't, I think it's a dangerous belief system. I'm not a fan. I, again, back to the sort of paradoxes of healing, like your thoughts do influence reality. Yes. Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, I decided I was going to write a book called sacred medicine and I was going to go all over the world. This right. was my thought. Right. And I decided and so you I was, created that. So I created, look, I manifested a book. So there is some truth to it. There's like a baby in that bathwater, but man, that's a lot of muddy ass bathwater. Um, well, and it didn't magically happen. Right. Like, I think this is where no. people get really stuck with these, this thinking is they think I think it and it will happen. And it, I, I, how I understand it is I can put that thought out into the field and I have to be willing to do the work to make sure that that happens. So if that means clearing stuff or looking and seeing what opportunities are there for me and present themselves when they do, that's all part of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the the way like the secret puts it out there, it's kind of magical thinking. It really Mm -hmm. is a trauma symptom because magical thinking is is a trauma symptom. And I understand why people do magical thinking. I love magic. I want to believe in magical thinking. Like, I want to believe it's that easy. But what I've come to realize is the other side of that paradox of healing, like our thoughts influence our reality and our thoughts do not control our reality. So I think a lot of people who hold those rigid dogmatic belief systems in the new age are often really, it is a trauma symptom that they cannot tolerate feeling out of control and they have a very hard time dealing with the kind of uncertainty that we've had in the past two years. Mm-hmm. And it's much more comfortable to believe a delusion that says that if I think positive, nothing bad will ever happen to me. But that's not, a, that's not real. That's, they're out of touch with reality. And this really came, uh, came, became obvious to me. Right now I'm at my friend Shiloh's house in Sonoma, and I was 
I was actually here during the Sonoma fires. I watched one of the first big wildfires. The day it happened, I was like, oh, no. And the place got so smoky. I couldn't breathe. The AQI was like 600. We were wearing our N95s and had air filters everywhere. But we ended up having to, like, evacuate. The fire wasn't that close, but we had to evacuate because of the smoke to somewhere where we could breathe. And I posted about it on Facebook. And some new ager was like, well, Dr. Rankin, that's just because of your smoky thoughts. If you could clear up your smoky thoughts, you would not be having such a hard time breathing. And I was like, are you telling me that I'm going to have like a bubble of smoke-free air around just me because I've cleared up my smoky thoughts and now I have pure, clear, unsmoky thoughts? Like that, like that's, that's the ridiculousness of that kind of magical thinking. It's like, right. no, I need to get in a car and drive away from the fire. <laughs> right. You right. know, and you, you have to be realistic. I'm not special. Everybody right. here is suffering the same, you know? So that, that kind of magical thinking gets really distorted. And it also um, keeps people from getting life-saving treatment. Mm-hmm. I had a law of attraction teacher who was an author and a psychotherapist who was a friend of mine who really genuinely believed that his thoughts cured, ca- caused his cancer and therefore his thoughts would cure his cancer and died. So didn't go to the doctor for a long, long, long time, and then it was too late. So th- that's, that's, those beliefs kill people. So I'm, you know, sure, we can have positive thoughts and have visionary ideas, and I can imagine, and I did. I remember the moment I imagined sacred medicine, the, the minute part two got cut, and I was like, oh, wow. If this isn't going to be in this book, I could make this a 10-year journey because I'm a mom. I can't just be like Liz Gilbert, eat, pray, love. And yeah, I know. I was sort of wondering how you did all of that, this, because I, I wanted to go with you. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I'm a mom, and I had a young child when I started this, and I didn't want to be abandoning my child. So I either took her with me or, you know, I would go on like a month at a time and then be with her. And I w- waited to do a lot of the stuff that required me to travel far until she was old enough where she was like, mom, I don't care. Go. She's 16. Yeah. My daughter's a similar age. So can you explain a little bit about, I know this was in your first book, but the whole health intelligences. Um, And you say in the book, I loved this. You said, trust your intuitive intelligence and maintain a healthy skepticism about our, I have a typo there. (laughs) about our own knowing, be on the lookout for agendas dressed up in a holy drag. So yeah, can you talk about what you meant by that? And also how to know and differentiate when I get a lot of questions often about intuition and when intuition is how we know to follow it, how we know when it's maybe, is it ever wrong? Um, when do the other mental and emotional and somatic intelligences weigh in, and how does that system work together? Yeah, well, there's, there's, mo- I could, I have a lot to say about that topic. That we could have a whole other podcast just about that topic. Oh, be careful! I'm gonna. Have yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first, the whole health intelligences are mental intelligence, emotional intelligence, intuitive intelligence, or spiritual intelligence, and somatic intelligence, and different people have like different capacities with regard to those different intelligences, right? So somebody, 
Somebody like our mutual friend, Jeff Rediger, who has, you know, graduate degrees from Harvard and Princeton, might be very developed in mental intelligence. Whereas somebody who um, grew up in an indigenous culture and didn't get a formal education, but was trained by the shaman in their, um, in their tribe, might have a very highly developed intuitive intelligence, right? And somebody maybe who is a, an athlete or a dancer, an embodied person. I, there are extreme athletes and dancers mm-hmm. that disembody, which is why they can do that. But somebody who's maybe um, in, in a profession that requires them to be very much in their body all the time, they might have a great deal of somatic intelligence. For example, I remember sitting, as part of my sacred medicine journey, I was sitting with these two healers that were very somatic. And they had literally been able to train their bodies or their bodies naturally did this. I didn't fully understand it. But they could ask yes, no questions to their bodies. And their their body would make a yes, like full body goosebumps. Like full body goosebumps was a yes. And like no goosebumps was a no. And I was like, whoa, that's so handy. <laughs> right? Seriously, that's like um, the muscle testing like times a gajillion. Right. So then muscle testing, a lot of it, and I, there's a whole chapter on muscle mm-hmm. testing, the pros and cons, the science and non-science of muscle testing. It's one of the most common sacred medicine diagnostic tools that I observed people using. And I also observed people misusing it more often than not. So I would mm. say, be very careful if somebody's muscle testing, you talk about agendas. So you know, I've heard muscle testing described as like training wheels for your intuition. Mm-hmm. And just like intuition, muscle testing and intuition, if you have agendas, then this can be very confusing. So first off, let's just say there's a, ch- a section in the book about medical intuition. And scientifically speaking, it is, the science is horrible. Mm-hmm. Like, Science basically has proved medical intuition doesn't work. However, I have a whole section in the book also about how science cannot measure some of the subjective aspects of healing that include things like intuition. And every medical intuitive that I know says, oh, if you put me in a scientific study, I'm not, I'm going to fail. Like those aren't the conditions when there's a, a skeptic like pressuring me and I'm in a laboratory, this is not the conditions where I'm attuned to my medical intuition. And yes, it's all of the good medical intuitives that I talked to said, oh yeah, it's definitely not the, you should never use it alone. You should use it with diagnostic testing. You should use it with your somatic intelligence and your emotional intelligence, with your critical thinking. Like it's just another tool. Mm -hmm. Just like muscle testing is another tool. You should never make a decision about whether or not to get surgery off of a muscle test but it's a piece of information, right? So when agendas come in is where it's problematic because for example, I can't tell you how many boundary violating and boundary wounded healers would come up to me at places like ASAP and say, I am reading something in your field and this is what I'm reading and my intuition tells me, but it's very clear to me they have an agenda. And they want something from me. They want to get my attention. They want me to promote their whatever. They want to be in my book. This is not clean. Mm -hmm. So do I trust their intuition? Oh, hell no. Right. That's a manipulation. And there are a lot of healers out there that do that. 
and we do it to ourselves. Sometimes yeah, that was that was how do we know when we're when we're pushing our own agenda? Well, I mean, I think we just kind of have to start by being honest with ourselves about our desires. There's nothing wrong with having desires, but let's say for example, we're trying to make a decision. Should I, I mean, and let's make it something really difficult and personal, right? Like um should I uh, accept the engagement proposal from this person I'm in love with, right? Well, let me check my intuition, right? Let me, let me check my critical thinking. Let me check my intuition, right? But if I have an agenda here, maybe my agenda is I really need my intuition to validate my desire to marry this person. Because I Even want though kids. Because I want kids or I want money or I want security or I want sex or whatever. Like this person's my twin flame or like whatever story we tell ourselves. But maybe we're checking intuition because our critical thinking is saying, you know what, we have seen like 25 red flags with this guy. Mm. And from a mental intelligence sort of critical thinking perspective, like maybe this isn't such a good idea. But we're going, intuition, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Right. And if there's, or we're like throwing up or we're anxious or right, we have like a gut feeling that says run and our critical intelligence is telling us run, but we can trick ourselves into now interpreting. And I've seen people do this. There's a a psychiatric um, term for this tendency to assign meaning to otherwise random things. I think it's called apophenia. Where so so now like the frog jumped across my path and that's the sign from my intuition because he has a frog tattoo that that's evidence that I should marry this guy. Right. Right. My intuition told me through the frog that right. I should marry this guy. But really, I'm looking for an excuse to validate my desire, which is valid. The desire is valid. Like, but that desire might be coming from a traumatized inner child that's wanting to enmesh and mesh with a wound mate. So that's, that's a complicated example. Well, but and we, I don't think intuition takes that much effort. Well, that's part, the other thing I was going to say is, all of the intuitives, like the really good intuitives that I've spoken to, and I can say this for myself, when I feel like I've gotten intuitive hits, it comes straight in and it feels totally neutral. Yep. And then I might have parts of me that have a reaction that like it or don't like it. Yep. But when it comes direct, it's neutral. And I think the only way you can know that is practice. Yeah. Is like learning to differentiate those you talk about subtle energies, right? Those subtle energies that are just that like clear cognizance that just drops in and you're like, oh, and then you're like, oh, maybe not, or maybe I should, or <laughs> da, da, da. and then you're like, okay, there's the mental piece that's taken over the intuition. Yes. And I mean, I'll give you a, an easier example, right? So let's say you go to, you're wanting to test your intuition, right? And so you go to the restaurant and you're like, okay, I'm going to let my intuition pick what is best for me on the menu. But then like you're reading the menu, you're like your mental intelligence is reading the menu. And then you have a part that has a preference. It's like, I want the ahi pokey. <laughs> so there's a part that wants the ahi pokey, but you're testing your intuition. Maybe the ahi pokey is not what is intuitively best for your body. So mm. 
those polarities between the parts that want the ahi pokey and the parts that want to trust your intuition can get in the way. Mm. And that's where I start using like internal family systems to work with polarized parts that might come inside. But in general, the way I think of it is like, if we have all these different intelligences and they're all giving us clues, because some of the decisions that we have to make in life are very complex. They're not just black and white, yes, no answers. And so if we take them as clues, then I sort of think of them like instruments in the symphony. Mm -hmm. And that wise divine self is kind of the conductor. But all of the instruments are giving us feedback so that my body is, oh, I have the full body goosebumps. What does that mean? Or I have a my contraction in my solar plexus when I think about that decision. Or, oh, I feel this spacious heart opening like butterflies in my chest. How do I interpret these various somatic symptoms? Or I'm, I have a migraine. This is a somatic symptom. Like what's, what happened at the time that I got the migraine? Is there a clue for me in that kind of somatic symptom? Um, we might then also get like a hunch, right? So I've got the somatic information. I've got the, the hunch or lack of thereof. I've got emotions about it, right? I have an emotion about whether or not I want to marry this person. This is not me. I'm not engaged, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, we're, we're, we get our emotions get involved and our emotions are full of information, energy and information. Mm -hmm. And I love the work of Carla McLaren, who is a psychic healer turned empathy researcher, Mm. um, grew up in a new age cult and was practicing like on the new age circuit, practicing energy healing and intuitive readings and all of this, uh, did like, I don't know, a whole bunch of books with Sounds True and then renounced all her previous work, went to grad school and sort of has like a scientific skeptic lens on what she used to do. And she basically, my favorite book of hers now, post-renouncement, is called The Language of Emotions. Mm-hmm. It's a fabulous book. And it basically talks about how every emotion is an um, action-requiring neurological program that has a specific action it's asking us to complete. And if we can learn to work with anger, like anger protects our boundaries, Right? Like if if you are violating my boundary, you're reading me without my consent and you're giving me feedback I didn't ask for, I'm going to get angry and I'm going to defend my boundary, right? Whereas if I am doing the same to you, I should feel shame because Mm -hmm. anger protects my boundary from violations and shame protects me from violating somebody else's boundary, just as two examples. Mm -hmm. So I think our emotions are really important. And that's really problematic in a lot of religions and new age culture where there's a lot of emotion shaming and we're sort of in this toxic positivity or it's, you have to keep your vibe up or whatever. If, if we're in that worldview, then we're suppressing what might be valenced as negative emotions, but those, those negative emotions also have tons of information. And if we are- there's a problem with labeling an emotion as positive or negative versus Absolutely. just an emotion. Right. So if we're spiritually bypassing those emotions, then we might think we're in love with this guy, but you know, he's actually abusive and we're, we're thinking it's all good or I'm unconditionally loving or, you know, that whole belief system that grooms people to, um, to be uh, pre- victims of pre- predators. 
So, so you, you gave me a perfect segue for my next question, <laughs> which is about spiritual bypassing, which okay. is so important. And, and I hope that when people listen to what I, you know, what I put out there, that they hear the importance of the integration. And I think that's what you're talking about as well. It's like, it's, it's an integrated whole. It's not separate. So talk about, I talked about spiritual bypassing from the, the, um, my, not my therapist, my um, supervisor slash teacher who really put me on this path. I interviewed her way back when about this because it was so, I remember it sticking with me so profoundly when I learned from her about it. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Have you talked to your audience much about it? I'm not sure how educated people only, are. Only if they it. listen to like episode 12, which okay. was a long time ago. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, so spiritual bypassing is a term that was defined by John Wellwood, who was a Buddhist psychologist. And he was observing that in a lot of spiritual communities, people were spiritualizing their conflict avoidance and using their spirituality as a way to avoid their trauma and um, suppress their pain. And it, was, it can be very effective. It can be an addiction that, for example, people can go into these dissociative meditative states where they're leaving their body, they're maybe astral traveling, they're in these multidimensional realms, they're going off to the galactic chamber. It's very exciting and you know, um, can make people feel quite grandiose and mm-hmm. And inflated. like they have a lot of power and they can do this and other people can't. And Right. So, but he was seeing that as a way to help, that people were, were helping themselves feel better. And it's certainly, you know, safer in some ways than heroin, but it was still like a bliss high from the dissociative state of disembodying and suppressing emotions and going into these altered states that are a temporary relief. But as soon as you come out of it, like the trauma is still there, the pain's still there, the body keeps the score, as Bessel van der Kolk says. Mm-hmm. And so just like any addiction, it would ramp up and ramp up. You know, maybe you're getting some relief from 20 minutes of meditation, and then it's an hour of meditation, and then it's three hours of meditation, and then people are going to 21-day silent meditation retreats. And like, obviously, there's benefit, some, there's benefit for some people. For some people, meditation is contraindicated. And they should be doing like embodiment practices mm-hmm. instead. Mm-hmm. So people who have a tendency to um, check out and dissociate really shouldn't be doing sitting meditation. That's sort of contraindicated unless you're really doing embodiment meditation. There's and there's big distinctions between those. Um, but the what he realized is that there was a whole belief system that was often being um, being taught by spiritual teachers and gurus as a way to potentially also groom cultic followers for tolerating abuse. So the ma- the biggest problem I see with spiritual, well, the biggest problem with spiritual bypassing is that people are not getting treatment for their traumas. They're not even aware that they're traumatized because maybe it's developmental trauma and they weren't sexually abused or they, they didn't grow up in a divorced home with child abuse with dad in jail. So they think they had a, a perfect childhood, but we now know that people who are attracted to spiritual communities are typically have a much higher trauma burden than the general population. And so it's an already vulnerable population. And then you teach them things like anger is bad. 
that it's an unspiritual emotion, that um, unconditional love means unconditional tolerance. Mm -hmm. I always tell people unconditional love, conditional access, Mm. right? Like your access to me and the privileges of being intimate with me should be entirely conditional. Now I can love you unconditionally from very, very far away if you're abusive, right? So I can still actually have a heart connection and have compassion and trauma-informed empathy for why somebody might be abusing me, but I definitely shouldn't let them be in my house, in my bed, with access to my bank account, and near my kids, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, one of the things I often say with my own patients is like, what happened to you explains your behavior. It doesn't excuse like what happened. I love that. I love that. That's a great distinction. Yeah. And so we like, let's understand Mm -hmm. it. But, but even in the therapeutic space, there are boundaries. I love my patients deeply. And I believe that they know that and feel that. And you don't get to come over to my house and you don't, right? Like there, there are very conditional access, right? Right. So I, I just wrote a, a whole book about uh, IFS-informed boundaries that I don't know what to do with. I literally just wrote it during the pandemic because oh. the boundary-violating behaviors of everybody, everybody so many people, um, were really evident. And so, you know, those boundaries. So the problem with spiritual bypassing is that it often is something that's practiced by people who are boundary-wounded to begin with. And don't realize they're boundary wounded and they are actually spiritualizing their boundarylessness because they're merging and fusing and now saying we're all one. We're in this ecstatic bliss, interconnected, interbeing state of ecstasy. But it's true that we're all one and we are separate. My body is separate than your body. If I put my body in front of an oncoming train, it's going to make me go, you know, non-physical and <laughs> it's not going to make you go non-physical. Mm-hmm. So, I like the way you say that, non-physical. <laughs> uh, disembodied. I was going to say, it makes me be disembodied and you still be embodied. Exactly. Which is really so, sad for the people who have to deal with the fact that I'm now disembodied. Right, exactly. <laughs> So, you know, again, it doesn't mean that we we also saw during the pandemic that we are interconnected, that we can't just do what's good for me, that I can't just, I mean, it was very obvious in my household because I was in my little bubble with two very high risk people during the, during lockdown. And so, and I'm not as high risk. And so there are things that I, risks I might've taken where I not connected to other people but I had to take risks at the low, at the riskiest common denominator. Mm-hmm. And the, so we all made sacrifices, including my child, who was the least vulnerable person uh, physically, mm-hmm. maybe the most vulnerable mentally in schools right. and all of that. Yeah. So I, it, it is true that we are connected and that our actions impact each other. And it's also true that we need boundaries and that we need we need permission to be able to um, withhold privileges if people are mistreating us. Mm -hmm. And so the reason I wrote the whole chapter about spiritual bypassing in uh, sacred medicine is because so many of the healers that I interviewed, especially kind of in the new age world, but also in sort of religious communities as well, there's this whole notion of things like premature forgiveness, for example, Mm -hmm. um, 
of, you know, somebody does something horrible to you and you just blink and they're forgiven with no acknowledgement of the emotions that you might have because of the trauma, with no um, accountability, with no social justice, like without, like sometimes you need to cry, be angry, call the police, press charges, and see if the other, per, you know, extend oneself to try to have a, comp a trauma-informed compassion for why the other person did this horrible thing. And if they are able to have remorse and regret and feel horrible about what they've done and beg for mercy after they've been held accountable in some way, then by all means, maybe there can be a legitimate forgiveness. Mm -hmm. But if somebody else is doubling down, like we saw this in the Me Too movement, right? Like somebody says Me Too, and then the person that they've accused of rape is doubling down in the media mm -hmm. on, I didn't do it. Like how many times do you see people publicly say, I did do that. I'm so sorry. I've been feeling shame about that for 20 years. How can I make it right? Can I at least pay for your therapy? And yeah, I get that I might go to jail. Right? I, it's interesting because I had an experience with someone when I was in like seventh grade that stuck with me. I said something very, very unkind. Um, and I'm ashamed. I'm, I'm actually, I, I'm okay with it now, but I was very ashamed of it. And I ran into this person at the grocery store like 10 years ago, five years ago. And it came flooding back like this, this memory. And I sent the person an email and I said, I don't know if you remember this and you might not, but I do. And I just wanted to apologize for it. And he, sa he said, I, I actually have no idea what you're talking about, um, but thank you. And oh, I love that. It was, it was like so, I felt like a sense of like relief. I didn't even know that this was living in me for so long. I mean, it was like when wow. I saw him, it kind of brought it back. Um, but then I was able to let it go in forgiving myself. Forgive yourself. Right. Yeah, that's, that that's a beautiful story. There, for any of your, re your listeners, um, the, the former Eve Ensler, who is now going by V, wrote a book called The Apology that is the art of a good apology, and it's beautiful. And what I wasn't seeing, so I was seeing so much corruption and abuse in the world of um, energy healing, like neo-shamanism, transformation. Yeah, I want to talk about that too. Like the self-help industry. I was like, oh my God, it's a shit show out here. Like seriously. And I was very, very naive. Like I was kind of a Girl Scout. Like I came out of conventional medicine where there are lots of boundaries and lots of boards and lots of regulation. And if you're breaking the rules, you know what the rules are and you know what could happen and you could lose your license and like, and you know, you're, you're going to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of checks and balances and people still make horrible mistakes and people get hurt. But at least if you're a therapist or you're a doctor, like you are accountable to a board of ethics. And if you violate those, then there are repercussions. Mm -hmm. But in this unregulated wild west of anybody can hang up a shingle and say, I'm an intuitive healer. I'm a, I'm a white shaman. I'm a whatever. Like I did a weekend workshop and now I'm a life coach. Like it's, it was just startling to my naivety. <laughs> Um, the level of con artistry and corruption and sexual assault and just literally I had to call one person that I had studied with who um, somebody had read about him because I posted his name on my Facebook page or something, not meaning it as an endorsement, just kind of telling the story and trying to give credit 
to where I was learning things. Somebody took that as an endorsement, went to see him as a client and sent me an email saying like my shaman raped me. And I was like, what do I, what do you do? I was like, call right. the police, press charges. She wouldn't. And so I was like, there's no board. I'm powerless. I don't know what to do unless I'm just going to like be a whistleblower and like try to trash him on the internet and put myself at risk of a lawsuit. And like, how do we hold somebody like this accountable? So I called the guy and I was like, what the hell? Mm -hmm. Like what happened? And he's like, well, I don't know. I go into a trance when I'm doing shamanic healing. And if I had sex with her, it's probably because she needed a sexual healing. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. And so that was another big moment in my journey where I was like, we have a Houston, we have a problem. Yeah. And so I am definitely a fan. Like, I do think there's, there's gems in this world. And I tried to like crystallize some of the gems. Like if you've tried everything in the conventional medical world and it hasn't worked and you've maybe played around in the wellness world and you've done your cleanses and your diets and your supplements and that hasn't worked, then like, here's some tools you might not have tried. Mm -hmm. You can experiment with that you can do on your own, that you can help. But I also put a whole section all of part two is about how to keep yourself safe in that industry because I was, that was a real shock and I really wasn't planning on like writing a whistleblowing book. Well, and that's what I appreciated is that there were things that you spoke about in this book that I think other people are not willing to speak about, hmm. which is this, this really blurry line. And I just, hmm. I don't know if you, if you're on AC, ASAP's email list, but they just came, had an email the other day about, now there's there's some states that are contemplating license having licensing requirements for these alternative healing practices. I am I am pro that. I you know, one of the reasons I think I could write a book like this, because I read a whole bunch of books about energy medicine and none of them were helpful. I was like, these are terrible. There's no critical thinking. Nobody's applying any skepticism. And what I re and so many people when I um, when I would interview people I would kind of go in like an anthropologist they talk about bracketing where you sort of put your own belief systems aside and you're maybe going into this indigenous tribe and you're going to just you know study this tribe without imposing your worldview and maybe there are experiences that you can only have if you take on the worldview of that tribe so I would kind of go in like totally open and willing to take in whatever these people are telling me. And I, some of these people I interviewed for a decade, like I, I did extensive work with them over time. And what I found is that when, as long as I was open and receptive, like they wanted to share everything with me. And then the minute I put on my critical thinking, skeptical scientist, like now let me challenge you. Like some of those people were abusive. Some of them just abandoned me. Some of them attacked, like, what? Like, and that's so confusing to me because I'm a scientist. Right. So I don't, I think one of the reasons I could write this book is I don't have an agenda. I realize most of the books written about energy medicine are written by energy healers who are making money as energy healers. And if they apply critical thinking and skepticism in their own books, then maybe they'll get less money or maybe they'll, people will be less willing to, um, yeah, to, to, be curious about the subjective aspects of healing that might be harder to measure with objective science. So I was really trying to go in with like all of my parts, you know, open and receptive to learning because I'm a student, I'm researching it. I don't, this is not my area of expertise. 
Um, but I'm also applying scientific, you know, principles to this. So I was trying to say, well, this seems like the plus. Here's the pros. Here's the cons. Like we have to be able to talk about all of them if we're going to ha have anything in the realm of healing that is also safe. Absolutely. So, so yeah. can we talk for a minute about God? I have so many more questions, <laughs> but I want to be mindful of your time. I want to like. <laughs> want to go through the book with a fine tooth comb. Um, you can invite so, me back. <laughs> okay. Okay. Deal. Um, sacred sites and the power of them. Oh what, gosh. What? I know, right? You're like, and another podcast. Like I said, each of these is kind of its own podcast. <laughs> yeah. 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 What, can you kind of give us a brief, if you can, overview of, of what you think makes them so powerful? I will try. I will start by saying, I don't know. Okay. I can. I will give you a, a, a scientific hypothesis that is not based on science, but it's based <laughs> on sort of, yeah, hypothetical. Um, so I love the work of Rupert Sheldrake. I would refer anybody who's interested in that question to check out, what's his latest one? It's like the science, alive. Of, science of spiritual practice. He is alive. He's embodied. He's embodied. He is embodied. He's physical. Yep. Okay. He is. He is physical. I'll maybe and I did a beautiful workshop with Rupert Sheldrake at um, Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. And it was so amazing. So he does a lot of work around morphic resonance. He's sort of this one of these renegade scientists who studies all the things you're not supposed to study if you're a scientific materialist, like homing pigeons. How do they know where home is? And he's basically gone about like disproving every theory that materialist scientists have tried to use. Like he blinds them with little contacts so they can't see home. He, you know, puts magnets on them so he messes up with their magnetism and confuses them so it's not some magnetic force. Like he basically, he puts them on ships and puts the ships in the middle of the ocean so home is always moving. <laughs> and no matter what he did to disorient these homing pigeons, they always find home. So. <laughs> You know, basically, the, the the unscientific conclusion is, well, they intuit it, right? Or they, <laughs> but that doesn't fit because scientific materialism doesn't believe in intuition. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so you can't say that homing pigeons intuit where home is. <laughs> like, you know, anyway, he has done all this work on um, morphic fields and morphic resonance and sacred sites and pilgrimage sites. And it's, I was really impacted by that because I went to a lot of sacred sites and pilgrimage sites. And so I was so Which glad that I- Which are different than, than vortexes? Like, are those two different things? Well, it's, I mean, not necessarily, I mean, it depends who you ask. Okay. Right? Like if you ask a, a new ager in Sedona, mm -hmm. is one of, is the vortex, the four vortexes or whatever, the famous ones, is that a sacred site? Most of them would say yes. If mm -hmm. you asked a materialist scientist, is that a sacred site? They would say that's nonsense. There's no such thing as energy vortexes. So, you know, different, depending on what is sacred to each individual, you know, a site is more or less sacred depending on who you are and what your belief system is. So Lourdes, for example, is considered a very sacred site to Catholics who believe that St. Bernadette had this vision from Mother Mary who told her to dig in the ground and that if she dug enough, she would find this holy spring and this holy spring would uh, create healing miracles. And the townsfolk thought she had lost her mind. She's digging, this little child is digging in the ground, 
covering herself with mud and gets a spring that's still making water. And people have been going to this place where she was told to, you know, make a, um, a big cathedral. So there's a big cathedral and there's still, that water is still running. And the grotto where she first saw the Mary Magdalene has been sacralized and millions of pilgrims. It's the second most visited site in, in uh, France be, besides Paris. And millions of pilgrims come from all over the world. They save every bit of their money to like beg for mercy from Mother Mary, either on behalf of themselves for physical health issues that they're dealing with or other struggles that they're dealing with or as a um, praying for help for a sick child or something. And so, you know, I think what makes a sacred site, like if you're Muslim, then it's Mecca. And if you're, you know, Hindu, you, the, I was in Bali and there are sacred sites all over, all over Bali. And in my worldview, because I'm very much an animist, like the national parks in the U.S. that were stolen from the indigenous caregivers, those were our original sacred sites in the United States and are, for me, the most sacred places in my country, more so than buildings. Um, so, but part of what Rupert was teaching is that these places that are, for whatever reason, maybe they're on ley lines, maybe they're energy vortices or whatever, I don't know, I'm not a... I'm not a, a scientist who studies that kind of science. But what Rupert believes is that maybe it's less about that and whatever made the thing a sacred site to begin with, maybe it's just beauty. Maybe it's just a place of beauty. And now millions of people have gone to that place of beauty with a heart full of reverence mm. in order to devote themselves to whatever that thing of beauty is. Maybe it's just a redwood forest. Maybe it's the Notre Dame. Maybe it's uh, Machu Picchu. But millions of pilgrims are going to this place to honor and um, open themselves spiritually and to express gratitude and make offerings to open our hearts and be open to mystical experiences, to be open to healing experiences, to be open to connections with the divine to be able to feel something and what rupert says is that maybe we create maybe certain places take on a resonance because he writes a lot about habits in nature and maybe for example if enough people go to lords and drink the water and have these miracle cures that they document they doc document medical before and after there's only i think like 71 70 or 71 documented miracles because they basically write off everything that could be you know placebo effect mm. so they're very strict about the medical miracles but maybe if enough people go and have healing experiences then maybe the more people come the more it increases the chance of somebody's healing experiences and that places maybe get sort of a charge in some way, like they're energetically charged, if you want to use that language. And that anybody, and I really felt that when I was at Grace Cathedral and we were walking the labyrinth with Rupert Sheldrake. And he was saying, as you walk the, the labyrinth, take the time to feel every suffering pilgrim who has ever come to Grace Cathedral and walked this labyrinth in search of spiritual connection and healing. And let yourself feel the interconnectedness with the suffering of the world and how much you're not alone. And as you go and light a candle at the altar where 
millions of people have gone to light candles, like feeling in your heart that sense of not being alone, of this being part of the human experience, and that you're just one of the flock having a painful experience. You're sick. You've lost a loved one. You're coming to Grace Cathedral wanting to feel better, and you're not alone. And it was so, I was so grateful that I did that workshop first because then I was able to go all over the world really intentionally feeling the resonance, the morphic resonance of every pilgrim who has ever come here over time and every pilgrim who's here beside me. And I'm not alone. It's not just me, this one separate body that would go disembodied if a train hit me. <laughs> that it, it, there, and there's something really healing in that. And mm-hmm. uh, William Bankston, who there's a whole chapter on Oh William my Bankston. God, wow, I, I went to... down that rabbit hole hard, Whoa. let me tell you. <laughs> He is a wild, wild creature. I am having him on the show. That's oh part my of God. Why, because I, I already started my cycling stuff. I'm like in between reading this book, I downloaded his on Audible so I could he listen. To hilarious. I mean, his work he seems hilarious. He calls me the West Coast PIA, which stands for pain in the ass. So I'm the West Coast <laughs> pain in the ass. So I call him the Long Island PIA. So we have a whole, we've been, he's one of those people I've been studying for 10 years. Because we touch base at least twice a year. I did a deep dive with him for several years. And that, but we touch base because he's learning new stuff and I'm learning new stuff. And like we're comparing notes and he's amazing. Um, and he has been doing very rigorous scientific research, curing cancer in mice with hands-on healing. Yes. Because he, you know, he's like, I don't want to waste my time with uprights. He calls us uprights. Because how can I control all of the other things that somebody, let's say somebody with cancer, he's like, I can say I did my hocus pocus, he calls it, on this person with pancreatic cancer. And lo and behold, the doctor told them they were stage four and they were going to die. And lo and behold, the cancer's gone. I can tell you that. But I can't tell you if for sure it was me because they were also drinking their green juice and they went to Lourdes and they're doing trauma therapy and they're like, what did it? Who knows? So he has controlled these mice. He's put them in little cages, they're the same DNA, they get the exact same food, they get the same water in the same location, controlling for absolutely everything. They get injected with the same dose of a breast cancer that historically kills 100% of them in 27 days. So it's a perfect model. And now he's curing over 90% of these, you know, mice with his little hocus pocus hands on healing that he then trains skeptical graduate students who think they're in a gullibility study and they can cure cancer in mice too. And then they get all grandiose and inflated and then they can't cure cancer anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're going to have to connect me with him because I, <laughs> I, he's I, hilarious. I, yeah. I, first of all, I, his book is hilarious. The way he talks about this stuff. He's so entertaining to listen to, but his, his, I had actually had a friend who mentioned him to me, mentioned it to me before, um, and then usually I try to see if something comes up like more than once for me, then I'm like, okay, that's a thread I'm going to pull. Yeah. Um, and it came up again and I was like, okay, I'm pulling. That okay. Thread. Okay. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. He's terrific. So, um, a, a few last, I know we have to wrap up and I would love to have you back on once you maybe get through the book tour and we can find another time, but Tell us what happened the night of your mom's funeral, because we were talking a little bit beforehand, and I just want to, as my podcast is Life, Death, and the Space Between, I feel like it would be 
I would be remiss not to bring this up. Okay, I I just forgot the the reason I brought up Bill Bankston is because I was going to refer people back to a to his website. He has a bunch of scientific articles that he's written, and he wrote one about um, resonant bonding and the placebo effect. Oh, right, that is just brilliant. And so I I came away from Lourdes thinking, oh my gosh, like maybe HIPAA and separating people who are sick from each other and having all these privacy rules so that one practitioner is seeing one patient at a time, maybe we're doing the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Maybe we should be having these mass healings where individuals are actually in that group field where maybe there's morphic resonance and we're in that vulnerability and in that state of devotion and in with that shared intention to heal, but also surrendered like on our knees to something, anything that we can surrender attachment to the outcome and just be in that place of devotion together, supportive. Like my experience at Lourdes, I wrote, there's a whole chapter about it. I was floored. I was absolutely surprised. I showed up just as a skeptical researcher. I had a really incredible experience there, but I won't tell the whole details, but I will answer about my mom. Um, so, and I've never said this publicly, so I feel a little shy, um, but it sounds like your podcast is the place to do it. <laughs> it, it, it for sure is. It for sure is. We go to all kinds of places on here. So, so my mother had told me, you know, if I can communicate with you, Lisa, you're going to be the one because the other kids don't believe in this stuff. And so you're going to be the one paying attention. So I'm probably going to come to you and you can tell the others. So if there's any way, you know, she was dying in hospice. She's like, if there's any way I can communicate from the other side, I'm going to come to you and you're going to tell everybody and you're going to say it's real. She made it to the other side. (laughs) And she was trying, she was trying to get creative. She was like, I think I'll come back as a butterfly or whatever. I was like, mom, maybe don't control it. Like, let's just see. Right. So anyway, my mother dies. We had told her, you may not die on Halloween because we do not want to ruin it for the children. And my cousin had told her she couldn't die the day before Halloween on the 29th because that was the anniversary of her brother's death. Mm-hmm. And so basically she had to die on the 30th or the, you know, November 1st or whatever. So I was like, mom, come on. Those are some specific rules. So anyway, she dies at 1132 or something PM before Halloween. So it's now like the, they're taking the body out and it's now Halloween. And I go to sleep. We're exhausted because we've been caring for my mother for nine months with her stage four cancer. And um, she wasn't interested in any of the things in this book. And it was none of my business to try to impose any of them on on that. I would say anybody who's everybody that asked me, what do I do if my loved one isn't willing to do any of these things? It's like, mind your own business. Somebody else's healing journey is is everybody's entitled to their own journey. And we can then work on the parts of ourselves that think that we have any right to control somebody else's journey. That's a boundary violation. So that's, that's a trauma symptom we can treat. <laughs> um, but anyway, I was very sad and grieving and we, we were all exhausted and I went to sleep and I woke up at like four o'clock in the morning and the painting above my bed has come crashing down. And my mom's sister, the painting above her bed in a separate house came crashing down. No way. So this is the night she died. And so we were like, seriously, was there an earthquake? Like, what happened? This was in Ohio, not California. Right. right, They're not typically earthquakes in Ohio. No. 
So that was bizarre. But then the night of her funeral, which wasn't for a few more days, uh, my brother had set me up to stay in the house of a friend of theirs. I had never been in this house, so I didn't know the house at all. And my best friend had flown in to kind of be, you know, like the maid of honor of me at, at the funeral of my of my mother, taking care of me while I was taking care of my daughter and, you know, all of the logistics and everything. So we, she and I were staying alone, me and my friend Katsy. And Katsy was in one room and I was in another. Now I have to give you a little backstory. So we're both, we both go to, first of all, we come in and Katsy says, we should make tea. Your mother always loved tea. And I was like, yes, that's a beautiful ritual. We'll do like a little Japanese tea, right? And so we go into the kitchen and the teapot is boiling. Like a plug-in teapot, you know, the, like the mm-hmm. beat you electric, electric plug-in teapots, but it's unplugged. And the water's boiling. The teapot boiling. is boiling. Like there's nobody there. Nobody's been here. It's like actively boiling. And, the, and we're both looking at it like, are we hallucinating? Right, right. The teapot is boiling. So we're like, well, mom made us tea. So we made tea. We're a little freaked out. This is a little scary. And then we go to sleep. And so I wake up and my mother had the most famous burp. I mean, my mother, like, my mother burped from her colon. I'm not joking. I mean, it was like, kind of like, (laughs) she was famous for her burps, right? So I wake up in the middle of the night and something invisible is burping in my room. And I'm going, that's not possible. You don't have a body that can burp. Like, you can't have, like, gas in your, in your intestines when you don't have intestines. <laughs> like, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, I think, wide awake. I'm not dreaming. I'm looking around. I'm going, I am crazy, and something's burping in my room. And I'm kind of freaking out, so I get up to go to the toilet, and I bump into Katsy, and Katsy's like, did you come in here singing? Now, my mother was like a lifelong singer. I said, no, I've been dealing with the burping in the other room. (laughs) And she says, somebody's singing in my room all night, singing in my room. And I said, what are they singing? And she told me, and it was talk about intuition. Before Uh she told me, I knew what she was going to tell me. I said, it's, and she told me, she said, I don't know the song. It's not a song I know, but it's about the sheep and they're grazing. And I was like, so my sheep may safely graze. She's like, that's it. And that was the song my mother and I always did in our harmonies. It was like our song. So. No way. So I don't know what to make of that. I mean, I like we're auditory ask. hallucinations or, you know, science, so- my scientific skeptic part is like. I, I, got, I don't, I don't have I any. Surrender. I, I surrender. I surrender. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then when we got back to my house, my housemate is very um, multidimensional, severe trauma survivor. So she has a lot of access to those multidimensional realms. I've lived with her for 10 years and she considers herself the psychic bodyguard of our house because she says things without bodies want to come in all the time. And so I don't see things like that. I'm not sensitive in that way, typically. And so she's just like, okay, you can come in. You have to stay out. Like, she's hilarious. But anyway, she was like, your mother will not leave. We have to set boundaries. Like, she was as boundary violating in death as she was was in life. life. (laughs) 
And so we literally had to do like a ceremony and be like, we love you. We've got your ashes. We're taking them to Mirror Woods. We're so grateful that you're going to the other side, but you don't get to be like some poltergeist because things were getting moved. And it was very scary and confusing to my daughter. And we were like, no, Mm -hmm. go finish your journey. You're only halfway there. Keep going. I know you're attached to me. Time to break the attachment. I love you. Bye-bye. Right. So, and then it stopped. Well, and and I think that's what I shared with you, you know, before we got started is that I had like this, this, my house was like taken over and it was like, no, 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 this, this cannot be. I don't envy you. I would not want a bunch of invisible beings like, you know, stopped pretty quick. Lining up at my house. Once I learned like, no, I can't function like this. It was like, okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard about things like that. One of the healers that I worked with actually got brought in to move a portal. And again, this sounds crazy to my like scientific mind. He said he, he had a client, an adult, who had a child, two children that shared a room and that there was a portal in that child's room and it would wake up the children like one o'clock in the morning, all the dead people would start streaming in and the children could see them and communicate with them. And it was very, very distressing because they weren't sleeping because they were getting interrupted at one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And so this healer was like brought in to move the portal. And he was sort of like, well, I don't really know how to do that ethically. I can move it, but where is it safe to send it? So he was like, so I sent it to Antarctica. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> And now the penguins are freaked out. <laughs> the penguins are freaked out. <laughs> so I'm going like, I heard more. Yeah, I heard all kinds of... There's a cartoon out there that's like um, Alice in Wonderland and Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, and they're looking at each other, and one of them's saying, I've seen some weird shit. And I feel like that pretty much sums up my sacred medicine journey. Like, I've seen some weird shit. <laughs> well, on that note, you're going to come back. We're going to be friends. I, this was phenomenal. Lissa, thank you. So, so much. Oh, Your book, Sacred Medicine, is incredible. Everybody, it is out now. We're recording this before, but it's gonna, you're going to hear this right after this book is released. So please go support Lissa and her work and everything that she's doing to help us find that balance of the spiritual and the conventional because it's so important and really is the space between, I think, that we we should all have to live. So, Lissa, thank you. Oh, if people want to find you, where can they do that? Oh, well, thesacredmedicinebook.com. You can get more information about the book. And my regular website is lissarankin.com. And if anybody wants to get on the list for healatlast.org, we're not ready yet. We're just getting started with the nonprofit work. Um, but if people are interested in being part of a group healing circle or being a facilitator of a group, healing circle or donating to the, it's, it's a 501c3. So if anybody wants to, we have philanthropists out there that want to fund us, um, healatlast.org. Oh, I have one more thing. Well, a few more things. I forgot to do my little speed round. Are you up for a quick speed round? Okay. Yeah. But I really have to go really in quick. like five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, this is quick. Okay. Okay. Spirituality means. <laughs> I can't do that. I'm so nuanced that I, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, spirituality means I don't know. What is something most people don't know about you? 
that I used to um, sing publicly. What is one thing you are looking forward to right now? My book launch on Tuesday. What is the one thing you are deeply grateful for right now? Oh, gosh. Well, being here right now with you. I love that. Thank you. What, is, what book is on your nightstand? Uh, right now? Um, actually, my friend Jeff Rediger's book, Cured, because I'm putting together a public statement we're both putting out about something. So oh, nice. You've had Jeff on your, on your nightstand Jeff. before. Jeff, yes. Jeff I'm also probably. reading Mary Carr's Lit, which is a fabulous memoir. All of her memoirs are fabulous. Hmm. Mary Carr with a K, K-A-R-R. Uh, what is your favorite spiritual or healing practice? Oh, God. IFS, internal family systems. What was the most transformative experience of your life? Oh, my gosh. Probably the night I was suicidal when I was pregnant with my daughter and just could not kill myself because I was pregnant. And I first heard my inner pilot light say, sweetheart, you're going to have to quit your job. And I was like, who is that? And that kind of changed everything because I hadn't heard little voices before and I wanted to get out of here. So, I mean, if you look at like the before and after of my life, that was fall of 2005 and like everything changed after that because that little voice started talking to me more Mm -hmm. and then it got bigger and then it started healing the, the other little voices that were traumatized. So yeah, that was big. That's, that's amazing. That's, that's what us therapists call a doorknob comment. You're going to leave me with that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I will. Lisa, thank you. I hope that's, if there's anybody that's listening that has mental health struggles, like, please know there is healing for that as well. Like, Mm -hmm. I am proof positive. Yeah. And there's not just one way. Absolutely. There's so many, you know, I, there's so many practices now available to people. There's so many modalities. If something isn't working for you, try something else. Absolutely. And none of them are a panacea and none of them work for every individual at every point. Like I've gotten really clear that there are certain types of traumas, for example, that need a very gentle, like that woman, just one hand, just Mm -hmm. a little bit of intimacy. Can you tolerate being safe and feel close and regulate your nervous system to mine? And, and then there are other people that do great with internal family systems, which is much deeper and a lot more talking. And then there are other people that do great with somatic experiencing. And there are other people that do great with energy healing mm-hmm. or craniosacral therapy or acupuncture or like, you know. Yep. yep. So find what works for you and don't spiritually bypass. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between. <laughs>